Emily Reisling was a 33-year-old mother of two who mysteriously disappeared in October 2021 in Northern California. Connected to three tribes, Hoopa Valley, Carrick, and Yurik, Emily's life was rooted in tradition. However, in the months before her disappearance, she was struggling greatly with her mental health. Her family is still desperately trying to find her. This is a story of Emily Reisling. Hey guys, this is Ash. This is Shiashi. This is Maggie, and you're listening to We Are Resilient. So before we get started, you know, if you guys are okay with this, I just wanted to talk a little bit about our intent. You know, we've always stated we're three Indigenous women with the goal of passion for justice for our Indigenous sisters. And and we do that by sharing their story and saying their names and just trying to make sure that these women aren't forgotten. In doing this, we understand that, that these are sensitive matters and that the trauma these families endure is something that we can't even possibly imagine. So I just kind of, I just want to be clear that we as Indigenous people realize that not every family wants their story shared. And there could be any number of reasons why. You know, we talk about this in our presentation that we do. Um, so we're not here to judge how a family works through their pain. And we don't want to add to it by prematurely covering the case. We're just here to share their stories and, you know, let people know that these are people and that we don't want their story to be forgotten. We have good intent with everything we do. And I guess just another point to bring up is we've always said that usually what we do is just search the internet for stories. So the information we find is pulled directly from news sources most of the time or Facebook pages um, for the individual that we're covering. So I guess just touching on the fact that we don't always reach out to families just because we do so many episodes that it would be pretty difficult for us to make contact with each one. But I would just encourage families if, you know, we do cover a story and it did or it's not appreciated from the family, then just to reach out to us because we want to be respectful and we want to cover these stories in the way that their families would want us to. You know, just based on history itself, that there's many reasons why families wouldn't be or indigenous families wouldn't be ready to to share. I just wanted to make sure before we really get into today's case, just that we talk a little bit about our intent and that we never, ever want to cause any family any additional pain in telling these stories. And the hard part is, is if it's still an active case and, you know, we see a flyer or something that's like, please call for information. Sometimes those are the stories that we want to cover just to get that information out there. That's a lot of our motivation, too, is just to help these families get justice for their loved ones. Exactly. So unfortunately, in the last few weeks, we have learned that we have added another name to the Koala Boundary MMIW list. That name is Tina Walking Stick. I didn't know Tina personally, but I've heard lots of anecdotes about her in the community and just the kind of person she was. Um, but I think Osh might have a little more personable experience with Tina. She was a member of the Eastern Band, the band that we are a part of, and we know her family. My husband went to school with her, and we plan to cover her story later this week. So. Unfortunately, just like a lot of the other MMIW cases, Tina's story is really tragic, and I hate that we're having to cover a story so close to home. 
but we hope just to shed some light on her story and help bring justice to her case. We've heard a lot of really great things about who she was and people growing up with her. So, And something that I saw on someone's Facebook post that they had shared about her when her obituary came out said, um, silence is injustice because people deserve to hear what happened to her so that she does receive justice in the court system. We really see a lot of these cases grow cold or get lost in a shuffle and it's been going on for far too long and we just want to ensure that these women stories get heard i had read an article uh that was written back in february 2022 when i was doing research on the mmiw of the lost coast you know you guys are familiar and if you've been listening um I do a little lost MMIW of the Lost Coast series in our mini episodes. And this article had shared that in California alone, the Yurk tribe and the Sovereign Bodies Institute uncovered 18 cases of missing or missing or murdered indigenous women in the past year. And it's a number they consider a vast undercount and an estimated 62% of those cases aren't listed in state or federal missing person databases. Sadly, that's not surprising. I've driven the Pacific Highway and it is so gorgeous. I didn't know you drove, uh, you drove that. Oh, you did. Cause you went out to California. We went to San Diego and went to the tulip fields, um, and Carlsbad actually, and drove from Carlsbad to San Diego on the Pacific Highway. And it's crazy because the highway literally like hugs a cliff, um, right beside the ocean. So it's like really vast land on the left side. If you're driving towards San Diego and on the right side, it's like these cliff, just literally cliffs straight down to the ocean. Yeah, it is pretty because we drove it too when we went out to California. Yeah, it's breathtaking. Just like Maggie said. Well, I'll be out there next year. WrestleMania 39. <laughs> so-, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'll get to drive it because you know, just by looking at the pictures, it's beautiful, but it's it's very haunting because you you know the history that's kind of within that beauty of that space. Now, the Yurt tribe it is currently the largest tribe in California, and I think it's with a little over five thousand enrolled members. So it's the largest tribe, but yeah, that's a small tribe. Isn't the Eastern Band technically a small tribe, and we're sixteen thousand? I don't think we're really considered small. I mean, small, small compared to Cherokee Nation. And according to their official website, quote, in the late 1800s, children were removed from the reservation to Oregon and to the Sherman Institute in Riverside, California. And many elders look back on this period in time as a horrifying experience because they lost their connection to their families and their culture. Many were not able to learn the Yurik language and did not participate in ceremonies for fear of violence being brought against them by non-Indians. Some elders went to great lengths to escape from the schools, traveling hundreds of miles to return home to their families. They lived with the constant fear of being caught and returned to school. Families often hid their children when they saw government officials. Over time, the use of boarding schools declined and day schools were established on the Europe Reservation. When I read stuff like that, it just kind of reiterates that fear of government fear of law enforcement what you just stated reflects a lot on what we went through and our people went through with the boarding school the exact same thing they were taken from their homes sent to boarding school unable to speak their language in return our grandparents didn't teach us the language out of fear of retaliation so our histories are pretty similar my grandmother went to 
the boarding schools. And unfortunately, she didn't have, you know, such a term. It, it was traumatic in general, but she wasn't. In Snowbird, they were not forced to not speak their language. They were just forced to learn English in addition. But my grandmother never went to school beyond what she was required to for the boarding school. So she has a third grade education. And that is simply due to the fear of the government. She didn't want to go to the white school, for say, because she was, you know, her family was worried about what would happen there. I can remember growing up and being in elementary school, and my grandma would ask me how I was doing my homework because she wanted to learn. I can remember teaching her, like, math problems. So, I mean, this is stuff that we personally have dealt with. My grandma has a fifth grade education. She finished in fifth grade and then went home. In uh, December 2021, the York tribe actually issued an emergency declaration. I briefly went over those numbers and a lot of the minis that I covered. But just as a quick reminder, a third of all cases in California, of MMIW cases in California, occurred in Mendocino, Humboldt, and Del Norte counties. And even worse, the murders of indigenous women in the state are seven times less likely to be solved. And according to the emergency declaration the York tribe issued, the actual number is likely much higher because MMIW cases are poorly documented at the state and federal levels. And then it reiterated where uh, most of the cases occur in those counties, uh, despite the sparse populations. And that's scary. It's like they don't have the complete data, but the data they have is terrifying. I don't know that we've ever said it here, but, you know, we bring that up a lot in our presentation in a report. When, what year was that report done? 2016. In a report done in 2016, there were 7,500 something MIW cases, but that report's never been repeated. So we don't even know how many cases are out there today. And the United States has no tracking system for MIW cases. And those are just the cases that are reported. We also talked about how people don't report out of fear of shame, fear from the prosecutor. I'm sorry, fear from the perpetrator. So like you're saying, Osh, it's even a fear of you don't talk about your family. And that's a that's a big barrier there, too. You don't talk about your family. You don't discuss that stuff. You don't bring it out for people to know about what's going on. Yeah. Hide your shame. So. Um, today, we're going to cover a story that has quite a bit of coverage, and it's probably the biggest known case from Northern California, aside from Khadijah Britton. Her name is Emily Risling, and she was a 33-year-old mother of two. She has connections to three tribes, including the Hoopa Valley, the Carrick, and the Uruk tribes. She was an accomplished Hoopa Valley dancer, and she was a graduate from the University of Oregon in 2014 with a degree in political science. And she attended McKinleyville High School, where her mother, Judy, said she was a straight A student, highly motivated and cared for people around her. As of this recording, her mother, Judy, and her father, Gary, are currently raising her children, who at the time were 10 years old and 21 months old. Just in a little bit I've read about Emily she was very involved. I mean, you got a degree in political science, so you know she cared a lot about the issues. And she was um, someone who talked about MMIW a lot and talked about the prevalence of MMIW. So it's just scary that her story is now one of the, the biggest known MMIW cases in Northern California. Emily was last seen leaving a friend's house on foot on the morning of October 14th. 
2021 and reportedly was en route to Klamath. Now, Klamath is located on the Yurik Reservation in Del Norte County. However, another article reported that Risling, who police have said was deeply troubled, was last seen on October 13th, 2021. But this report stated she was seen by a school bus full of children and she was alone and walking naked on a remote bridge, which runs towards the Klamath River. So there's two different accounts here. And um, I mentioned them both because I'm not exactly sure which one's which. But if you got a school bus full of children that's seen it, that seems. Yeah, and that's probably the more accurate one. I would feel like. Now, police say Risling had been roaming the area naked on several occasions. And she was arrested for arson after starting a fire in a cemetery. Emily's sister, Mary, had shared with the KLCC news organization that Emily had struggled with mental health issues, and she has worried that because of her mental health issues, it's added another layer of stigma to their case or to her case. Because that last sighting that she was supposedly seen naked walking on a remote bridge was the last time anyone has ever seen her. She's been she's been gone since. Do they know why she was naked? So. No, um, from what I gather, this was not a isolated incident. She have a history of mental health issues or? Her sister stated was that she was struggling with mental health issues in the months ahead of her disappearance. Now, her mother, Judy, said she wasn't always like that. But after she had given birth to her youngest child, she had said that Emily was dealing with postpartum depression and was unable to get treatment. Um, She was also in an abusive relationship and may have been self-medicating with drugs. And her sister also was quoted saying, the amount of times my sister has been picked up over the years by the Humboldt County Sheriff, it's like, let's get her in trouble, but let's not help her. When police officers have a certain number of run-ins with a person and they go missing, they have the stigma over who this person was or who they thought she was. And we've talked about that numerous times. We talked about that. I think we mentioned that in the last uh, MMIW presentation we did, Maggie, about the stigma and how people tend to view others who have mental health issues or have issues with addiction. Yeah, unfortunately, that kind of becomes the narrative behind their stories, even after their death. And, you know, and in her case, like she's dealing with postpartum depression, which is no joke. It affects so many people, too. Yeah. And she was unable to get treatment. We're talking about you know, maybe the cost of services. I don't know what the healthcare services are, uh, but if she was unable to get treatment on top of what she was also in an abusive relationship, I mean, there's a lot of factors here that can break a person. There's a stigma over her when she clearly was struggling. She had a lot of cards dealt against her, many things to navigate through and that can be tough. And her parents, uh, both her parents and tribal law enforcement have said repeatedly that she had fell through the cracks in a vast remote area with almost no mental health services and limited law enforcement and addiction treatment services. So it just goes back to what I said, you know, there's almost no mental health services or addiction treatment services. What, what can she do if she's not getting the help she needs? What's sad is it's worse in native communities because we were, we are dependent on Indian health services, but this is a problem nationwide. Mental health services and just health services in general aren't easily accessible for those who cannot afford it and those who do not know how to navigate the systems. It's hard to read 
because Emily really needed help dealing with the things she was dealing with. And the fact that there wasn't any help for her, like, where do you go? What do you do? On top of a no mental health services and a lack of addiction treatment services, a York tribal judge named Abby Abenanti noted that part of the issue behind the high numbers of MIW in this area is that it's rural and it's under-resourced. She said that the geography is beautiful. Quote, I love my homeland, but it makes it really difficult to resolve this kind of issue without a lot of equipment and modern technical ability to deal with it. We don't have that. And we as a tribe and the county, they're just under-resourced for what the issues are. So it's easy to put fingers and say, well, they didn't do this. But if you don't have that technology, you're at a significant disadvantage, end quote. And she was mentioning technology, um, including like drones, uh, heat-seeking sensors, and training for personnel. In like a desolate area where there's not a lot of foot traffic, how much more difficult does that make it to try and find these women when you don't have the technology or the resources or equipment that would help you look for people in this kind of terrain? In the area that Emily went missing, it's incredibly remote. And finding out what happened to Emily is complicated because of the uh, remoteness of the area she lived in and the overlapping jurisdictions of different law enforcement agencies. Mary, Emily's sister, said, we had reached out to the BIA for support and other federal organizations. And until the sheriff's department classifies it as a cold case, federal organizations can't help. And she said, we all feel helpless. This can happen to any one of us. You know, she was battling postpartum depression and dealing in an abusive relationship. I don't know what I'm trying to say, guys. I just, I'm at a loss for words. And I just really feel for this family that she was just last seen wandering off into a remote area and then no one's seen her since. You know, just hear that the possibility is that someone could have stopped and been like, do you need help? You know? Yeah, that's that's what I I was going to say. How does she walk around naked unnoticed? or unapproached someone didn't want to stop and help her or ask her she had been known to do this before and that because she'd been known to do this before it wasn't taken as seriously because there was a a stigma on her so that it probably wasn't taken as seriously as it should have been oh yeah okay which is really sad because you know at that level it's clear that she really needed some help and she if you know if the resources were available, she could have really benefited from some help. Yeah, it's unfortunate. So in a Facebook post from the Hoopa Valley tribe, a $20,000 reward was offered for information leading to her safe return. The post said she is 5'2", 140 pounds. She now has short brown hair, brown eyes, and anyone with information can call the Hoopa Tribal Police Dispatch at 530-625-4202. Thank you for listening to We Are Resilient. For links to information found for this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at We Are Resilient Podcast. Send us an email at weareresilientpod at gmail.com or visit us at www.war-podcast.com.